Well, it's good to be here in front of you again today, worshiping, uh, bringing the Word of God for us today. Um, I remember whenever I was, um, well, I'm still pretty new at preaching, but I remember when I was even newer at preaching and uh, was preaching even less, uh, I can remember kind of, I would almost always start every sermon that I preached, um, I would start by talking about the, the joy and the privilege that it is to, um, to get this opportunity to, to stand up here and to preach the Word of God. It is a joy, it is a privilege, it is a, a responsibility that, um, that I take very seriously and one that I um, feel always unworthy to do. Uh, and yet, I, I still, w- I would want to reiterate, even now, after having preached to you guys on a sem- pretty regular basis, um, it's still the, the weight of what we do here through this time of, of preaching and opening up the Word of God to study and to hear from the Lord is, is a very, very powerful thing and something that um, I'm thankful to get to have the opportunity to do, so thank you for this. Um, but as we begin today, we are going to be in the book of Luke. We're continuing to make our way through the book of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 17 this week. If you want to go ahead and pull out your Bibles and turn to Luke 17, it will also be on the screen. Uh, You can follow along there if you so choose. Luke chapter 17, and we're going to be looking today at verses 7 through verse 11, or excuse me, through verse 10. 7 through 10. It says this. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word here today, we ask that you would speak to us through this word. Lord, I ask that as I uh, stand before this congregation, Lord, you know my heart. You know I um, I am an unworthy servant. And yet, Lord, I ask for your grace and for your mercy today as we seek to understand how we here in Evansville, Indiana in the year 2021 are to take this passage and apply it to our lives. I pray that we would be able to do so Uh, by your grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So my title for our sermon today is A Slice of Humble Pie. A Slice of Humble Pie. I've titled it this because um, it's my opinion that that really what we're getting here today through this passage of Scripture is a healthy, needed dose of humble pie. A healthy reminder of, of the humility that ought to mark the life of a believer. I, and I want to start today by asking a question, taking a quick poll of our congregation here today. How many of you in here, when you were growing up, or maybe if you're still growing up, got an allowance from your parents? That is way more than I thought. You are all geniuses, okay, that you somehow managed to like convince your parents that they owed you money simply for being their child. I think that is amazing. Um, I applaud you all. I was never able to accomplish that growing up. Uh, my parents growing up had apparently a very different view of allowance than your parents, is, than your parents did. Um, 
my parents, both my mom and my dad, they presented a very united front with regards to allowance, uh, both felt that allowance, that my allowance as their child uh, for doing the chores that I was required to do, for taking out the trash, for doing the dishes, for helping with the dog, uh, whatever the case may be, my allowance that I received for that was being able to live in their home and eat their food and sleep in my bed. That was my allowance. Paul gives me amen. Yes. That was my allowance. Uh, And to be frank, my parents owed me no more than that. They owed me no more than the care that they were already giving me, that they were already showing me. And and I, I, my parents were wonderful, by the way. I was in no way neglected as a child, nor did I miss out on, on fun opportunities or didn't get to hang out with my friends or anything like that. My parents took good care of me, um, and I was very blessed, very fortunate. I had wonderful, wonderful, loving parents. Uh, but um, their view on allowance, which, uh, frankly, I tend to share, uh, was one that, that all that I deserved from them uh, was to be cared for, to be loved well, to be given food to eat, a bed to sleep in, um, and probably most importantly, to be raised in the love and admonition of the Lord, which for that I'm most grateful. But this, this view of allowance that I had when I was growing up, because growing up, I wanted an allowance. It wasn't that I was like, oh, my parents are so wise to not give me money, like all of my friends and their parents. No, I really, really wanted an allowance. It sounded great. It was like free money. Like I'm already doing these chores, and you're telling me that your parents pay you for that? That sounds awesome. And so I would try and convince my mom and dad that, that they should give me money for doing work around the house. I felt like I deserved that. It made, made good sense to me. I wanted money to be able to go out and buy candy or buy video games or whatever nonsense kids waste their money on these days. I wanted that. But this idea that kind of motivated me to want allowance uh, stemmed from the pride in my heart. The pride in my heart to think that I somehow deserved something for doing what was my duty in the home, for doing what, what both God has commanded me to do, but also my parents who, who take good care of me command of me to do. It was pride that caused me to feel that way. And it was pride, the very kind of pride, that Christ is addressing head on in this passage that we see here today. Christ is, is taking head on this issue of pride, the issue This sin that John Stott calls the essence of all sin. He's confronting the sin of pride. Specifically, Jesus is calling out the prideful arrogance that causes created beings to stand before a holy God thinking of themselves more highly than they are, or in many cases, thinking of ourselves even more high than God. This is a very severe form of pride. Not only is it a very severe form of pride, but it is one that stems back to the very beginning. It is the very same kind of pride. It is at the very heart of the issue, which caused Lucifer to commit the sin that ended up uh, sending him to the place that he is today. It was the sin of pride, the, the sin to say, God, I want, I deserve what you have. I deserve more than you have given me, and I want it. This very same sin lives in the heart of each and every one of us. And if we're honest, we know this, right? We all know the pride that dwells within our hearts. And pride is a constant issue that Christ deals with repeatedly through his teaching. This is is by no means the first appearance of, uh, of Christ's teaching on pride and humility. One of the most famous parables on pride that he told was in Luke chapter 17, or excuse me, Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. 
<clears throat> just a few chapters earlier, when Jesus says this. It says, when Jesus noticed how the guests chose places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited to a wedding banquet, do not sit in the place of honor. In case someone more distinguished than you who has been invited, then the host who invited both of you will come and tell you, give this man your seat. And in humiliation, you will have to take the last place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the last place so that your host will come and tell you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in front of everyone at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable, along with many other teachings of Jesus and many other things we see throughout Scripture, remind us of the, the reversal that takes place that we see in the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world, right? The kingdom of earth, the kingdom here on earth, says if you want to make it in, in life, you have to take it. If you want to be at the head of the table, that means you go in and you take the head of the table. To be perfectly honest, in, in most of our society today, pride is seen, a, is seen as a good thing. It's seen as, in many cases, it's turned into a virtue. Yet, in the kingdom of God, we are told to do the opposite, to rather humble ourselves, to make ourselves servant of all. And in that way, in doing that, we will be exalted. We will be great in the kingdom of God. And in order to help us understand this reality, Jesus brings us, in this passage that we're looking at today in Luke 17, brings us directly into one of the most humble positions imaginable. He brings us straight down to the position of a slave, the position of a servant. As he preaches this parable, the first thing that we see the first thing that we should recognize is point number one, that we are slaves. The, the servants, the slaves, the bondservant, it might be translated in, in your Bible, in this passage, is referring to us. It's referring to human beings. It's referring to followers of Christ. He says, will any of you who have a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? It's important for us to recognize that in this passage, while he is speaking to them within their context, because they would fully understand what Jesus is talking about with regards to a master and a servant. But in this passage, we need to recognize that we are the slave in this passage. We are the one that has been called by God to serve him, to plow the field, to work, to prepare the, the food. And, and even upon the initial reading of this passage, I think most of us, if we're honest, would admit that just reading this parable kind of elicits, kind of brings out a little bit of the pride that is in our heart and brings it to the surface. Because none of us in here likes the idea of being a slave or a servant. We tend to recoil at that. Every one of us tends towards a thinking that we are above servitude, that we are above being a servant, that we are above being slayed, that we deserve better. After all, we are Americans, right? Freedom is the American way. And now we're here in this passage being referred to with regards, being compared to slaves, servants. And I think all of us, if, we, if we're honest, would, would recognize and admit that even just the idea of being compared to a servant or a slave, we hate that idea. 
It goes against our grain as human beings. And yet, all throughout the New Testament, we're described in this way, right? We're described in Ephesians 6.6 as slaves to Christ. We're described as slaves to righteousness in Romans chapter 6, verse 18. And throughout the New Testament, we're called to be servants of God. Not only servants of God, but servants of others as well. We should begin to think of ourselves in this way, as servants, as slaves. Because here's the reality that Paul makes clear in Romans 6, is that whatever the case, you are a slave. Before Christ, you are a slave to what? To your sin, right? In Christ, we are slaves to Christ. We are slaves to righteousness. Because whoever it is that you're serving, whoever you have given control over to your life, whoever your life is submitted to, that is your master. That is who you are a servant or a slave to. And there's really only two options. You can either be a slave to your sin or you can be a slave to Christ. Those are our only two options. And for us, in our, in our context, in our culture, we hear the word slavery, we hear the word slave, and, and I know what it immediately evicts in our heart, or, or brings up in our heart, what it reminds us of. It's always for us, it reminds us of, of the, the awful sin of race-based slavery that has, that has been a part of our history, right? That's always what it immediately brings up for us and those are some deep and terrible wounds and it's no wonder they keep being brought up but in the context which jesus is writing here slavery was a very different issue it was a very different kind of thing it was not race-based slavery that that christ is referring to here but rather in in ancient middle eastern time slavery oftentimes was an an okay lot in life provided you had a good master who, who lived the way he ought to live and treated his servants well, slavery was not a bad gig. In fact, to be a slave, and, and some people would even put themselves in a state of slavery, in a state of servitude, bond servant, because it offered a certain level of stability and security that being free did not offer. Those who were free constantly had to make sure that they were making ends meet, that they were able to feed themselves and their family, and it was a serious struggle. But for the one who was a servant or a slave to a good master, he was under the care of the master. He was the master's responsibility. The master would care for him, would make sure that he was, had all that he needed. There was a great sense of security and safety that was to be found to be a slave or a servant of a good master. You would have a home to live in. You would have food to eat. Security that in many cases was scarce to come by outside of this. And so this does begin to, to affect our understanding of how we should be viewing the idea of slavery here or servanthood here. Because who is it that we are a slave to or a servant to? To Christ. That's exactly right. There is no better master to be a slave to than Christ. If even earthly masters in this time knew how to, how to treat their slaves well and servants well, how much more do we expect that Christ knows how to treat his servants well? But even as we, as we try to bring this to our own context, we can, we can draw an understanding of this passage out, even thinking with regards to an employee and an owner relationship. If you're an employee working for an owner, or maybe you're an owner who has employees under him, 
and an employee were to go to his owner after doing his job that he was getting paid to do and demand that that owner offer him a, a part of the company. I deserve it. I have worked hard managing this money or I have worked hard sweeping these floors or I have worked hard doing X, Y, or Z. Well, that request would be denied, right? That would be a foolish request, a prideful request. It's not your company. You are merely doing what was your duty, what you were commanded to do. And so the starting point for humility for us, for attacking pride as we stand before God, is understanding our position before him. Seeing, first of all, that we are created by him and therefore owe him our worship and our obedience, but also seeing that we, even worse, are sinners before him. We are sinners standing before a holy God. And therefore, point number two, we are owed nothing. And in fact, we owe everything. We stand in a state of permanent indebtedness to Christ Jesus, to God our Father. A debt that we will never be able to repay, nor were we ever intended to be able to repay it. He owes us nothing, but we owe him everything. The kind of thinking that's represented rhetorically in this parable is the kind that forgets that we are sinners in need of grace. It's the kind of attitude that comes from the idea that we somehow deserve to be thanked by God for doing or for, for giving him, uh, thanks by God for doing or giving him something that he did not require of us or that he did not deserve. It assumes that the servant does not owe the master obedience. After all, the text makes clear that he has only done what was commanded. And yet, what does he expect? Thanks? By no means. By no means. Chapter 16 of the, of the 1689 Baptist Confession. If you've been coming to Sunday school here, you know that uh, Jacob has been working his way through the 1689 Baptist Confession in there. If you've been coming to our growth group, you know we've kind of been looking at the, the Confession of Faith. And chapter 16 in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith deals very thoroughly with the idea of good works. It is a chapter on good works and the role that good works play. In paragraph number four of chapter 16 of the Confession, it says this. It says, They who in their obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life are so far from being able to superiorate or to do more than God requires as they fall short of much in much which in duty they are bound to do. In other words, if you, as the, the confession says, in your obedience attain to the greatest height which is possible in this life, if you do all the good works that a human could possibly do, if you obey Christ better than any other human being has ever obeyed Christ, then what have you attained to? Nothing. You have still fallen short of what was even your duty, of what you owed Christ. You have not even made it to that yet. You have not even broken even with what you have owed Christ, let alone surpassed that so that you are somehow owed some sort of special gratitude or thanks. And then the second half of paragraph number five in the confession says this. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty 
and are unprofitable servants. And because they are good, they proceed from his spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's punishment. Speaking here of our good works, the confession is saying that there is no reason for us to deserve anything for our good works for for two very important reasons. For one, all of the good works that we do as believers, as followers of Christ, because we know that the only person who is able to truly do good works in the eyes of God are believers and dwelt with the Holy Spirit, renewed, given new birth. All the good deeds that we are able to do proceed from his spirit. Any good thing that we do as a believer, we are only able to do because the Holy Spirit enables us to do it, empowers us. And then we turn around and think we somehow deserve credit or praise. We weren't even able to do it apart from the Holy Spirit. And in addition, all of those good deeds that we do, because they are wrought by us, are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's punishment. Even our good deeds are as filthy rags. Amen? There is nothing that we can do, no good deed that we can do, that is not intermingled with sinfulness, with weakness, with imperfection. Even the good things that we do are imperfect and therefore fall short of the perfect standard that God expects of us. The perfect standard required by the law. We can never meet it. Paul asked the question in Romans 11.35, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This question is a rhetorical question. And the obvious answer to the question is no one. No one can give anything to God to the point that he somehow deserves to be thanked or repaid. And he goes on to tell us why in verse 36. For from him, And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All glory is due our God. Because all things that are good, all things that we do, all the things that others do, every good thing in this world is by him, is through him, is for him. And he alone deserves the glory and the praise. Not us. If there was ever a time when we had done so many good works or such good works that we deserved God's praise, then we deserve a bit of the glory, do we not? And that is entirely out of the question. All the glory belongs to the Lord. We do not get a single ounce of it. Even for the good works that we do, for even these things are made possible only by his grace and yet still tainted by our sin. So then where does this leave us? Where does it leave us as we say that all of our good deeds can never earn us a single ounce with Christ? Well, it leaves us the same place that verse 11 leads us. It leads leads us to say, or excuse me, verse 10. It leads us to conclude, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. This is point number three. We are unworthy servants. Even after doing all the good deeds that we are called to do, all the good deeds that we are able to do, we are left after all giving 
all the obedience that we can to the Lord and that we should and that we owe him, we are left saying we are unworthy servants. We still haven't done enough. We still don't deserve to be in his house. A, a graphic example of this or a very real example of this that, that I think we can anyone in here who has children can relate to is when your children, I have a two-year-old son, Elijah, and Elijah loves to help. Whatever dad is doing, he wants to help do it. He's also getting to be very independent, so he likes to try and do things on his own. But the problem is, he's two years old, and so there's very little that this guy can do on his own. Very little. So, but I always try, and, and as much as it might test my patience, I always try and include him in whatever I'm doing, and, and so I'll tell him something like, Elijah, will you, uh, will you help dad take out the trash? And he's all excited. Yeah, I'm going to help dad take out the trash. I'm going to do it. And so we go over, and I'm like, all right, pull the trash out. And he grabs it, and, and, and what ends up happening? Dad ends up pulling the trash out, right? And, and dad ties it up while he stands there and, and waits. And then I say, all right, let's carry it out to the trash can. And, and he grabs it, and dad picks it up, right? And he holds onto the trash can as we take it out, or the trash bag as we take it out to the trash can. And then the trash can's like twice his height, right? So he kind of pushes on it while dad lifts it up into the trash can and then closes the lid. And then what happens? Eli goes, I did it! Every time he says, I did it! It's like one of his favorite phrases. And almost every time I'm like, yeah, did you though? You really didn't. But I try not to say that out loud. But the reality is that this is how we are with our good works. We're like little two-year-old children looking like we just did the work of taking out the trash when really all we did was hold on to the bag while our father did the work. Let us not be so bold then to look at our heavenly father after we have done, done our good deed only by his power and expect some special gratitude or some special treatment. Even in doing that, we deserve no glory. Why? Because he is the only one worthy of glory. He does the work, not us. He merely gives us the joy of participating, right? We're like Eli. After getting to help dad take out the trash, we love it, right? That is the joy that is ours. This concept should inform the way we think about our good works. Each and every one of us, each and every one of us in here is susceptible to having this kind of pride creep into our life. And one way to help defend against this pride in our life is to remind ourselves regularly of the fact that we are unworthy. To view ourselves more like a two-year-old child serving his dad by helping him take out the trash. Recognizing that we can only do what he helps us to do. What he gives us the ability to do. We as Christians ought to live with a perpetual sense of inadequacy. This in spite of the way the culture around us tries to push. The culture around us is constantly trying to tell you, you're good enough. Follow your heart. You are worthy. You do deserve it. And here Christ makes clear that we are unworthy servants. That's what we should say. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty, what we owed God and nothing more. In fact, we haven't even attained to that. This sense of inadequacy that should be perpetual in the life of a Christian is not intended to make us depressed 
or to cause us self-loathing or to think that we are trash. It's intended to make way for the grace of God to take over. Recognizing our inadequacy, our unworthiness, our inability makes a huge hole and leaves us only with grace, which is point number four, enter grace. The fact that in all of our good deeds, even if we do all that is humanly possible, we are still inadequate, still unworthy. Where does it leave us? It leaves us with grace alone. A firm recognition of the reality that we are unworthy servants causes us to see that our justification, our sanctification, our glorification, our salvation is a result of God's grace alone, wrought by nothing in us. When we see that and, and read that we are unworthy servants, only able to do a little bit of what we owe God, it should cause us relief, recognizing that the only reason we are accepted by God is by his grace alone, not because of our good works that are stained by sin, but by his grace alone, we are accepted. And God, though he does not have to, what does he do when we do good works? He is pleased. He is pleased when we do good works. Even though we're inadequate, even though we're sinners, God is pleased when his people obey him, and he is displeased when they don't. But here is the most amazing part of this. We've already made clear that once we've done all the good works that we can do, we have still only done what is our duty. We've not somehow surpassed God's expectation or God's requirement of us, of us and therefore deserve special thanks or gratitude. In response, like in verse 7, this idea is so foolhardy. In fact, what does it mean to give someone something more than they deserve or something they don't deserve? What's the word for that? Grace. To think that, that we as servants somehow deserve thanks for something undeserved, something that we have somehow done that, oh, it goes above and beyond what a servant would do, therefore we deserve thanks, is to, to make the assumption that we have somehow given God a grace. By no means. So we've established that all we can do is at best our duty. Is at best what is commanded of us by God. And yet, this is exactly what God has done for us. What he has asked them if they would do rhetorically. When he says to them, will you say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at table? This rhetorical question he knows, and they know, the answer is a no. You would not say that to your servant because all they've done is their duty. And Christ says, you are right. And this is the attitude that you should have as servants of God. And yet, what has God done for us? We, though unworthy slaves, who could never do enough to receive a special place at the table, have now been invited to come and sit at the master's table and to dine with him, Romans 8 and Galatians 4 remind us of the glorious reality that is ours because of our union with Christ Jesus, that we are sons of God, that we are heirs with Christ, and that we have access to all the privileges that come along with that. God has taken unworthy servants and said, I'm going to treat you as sons and heirs. And he says, come, dine at my table. No, you don't deserve it. 
That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because of my grace alone and my love. Not because of anything done by you. On that day when we celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will not be doing so as servants standing to the side waiting for everyone to finish. We will do so seated at the table with Christ because of his grace alone. All that this passage, this parable, this rhetorical question would imply the answer of no, you would never do that to a servant. God has said, and yet I have in Christ Jesus. All of these things are available through grace alone in Christ Jesus alone. Through union with him, we not only have a master who is a good master who cares for us and looks after us and provides us safety and security, but we have a good father who has adopted us as his own and has brought us to the table to dine with him as his children. And for that, we ought to worship. Depending on the listeners to Christ's words here, this parable should have one of two effects in their lives. For the one who thinks himself himself deserving of God's approval or worthy of some sort of reward because of the way that, that they have lived or deeds that they have done, the effect should be to humble you and to bring to your attention the reality of your estate. The reality that you have never done anything to earn anything from God. At best, you have done what a servant ought to do for a master. At best. Which means that any sort of religious system that says that you need to do certain things in order to gain God's approval, in order to merit anything before God, is a false system. If it is not solely by grace alone that you gain access before God, then you have no access to God. None. Except by grace alone. And for those in here who are already fully aware of their inability, this should result in an increased hope and rejoicing, knowing that the burden required to achieve our justification before God is not on us, but it was born in Christ. We have reason to rejoice as unworthy servants who after doing all that we owed God to do and only that, he looks at us in our estate as sinful, as unworthy, as corrupt, and adopts us as his children and invites us to the table. And for that, we say thank you. This today is our, I hope, a healthy dose of humble pie, recognizing our estate, recognizing who we are as we stand before a holy God. Let's pray. Lord, we have every reason today to see our inadequacies, to, to, to know and recognize our sinfulness. Lord, if there's one thing that is ever present in our lives and constantly there reminding us, it is our sin. It is the sin of pride. It is wickedness, corruption in our hearts. And Lord, that is why we desperately and regularly need to be reminded of the grace that is available in Christ Jesus. May this passage, Lord, not serve to discourage us, thinking that we are, are simply left in a state of unworthiness and rejected. But may it remind us that our acceptance before God is not based on our worth, but it is based on his grace alone. May we lean into that. May we rely on that as we go forward from this place. And may you constantly remind us of that 
throughout this week and throughout our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we now come to the portion in our service where we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. This uh, Lord's Supper that we do serves